Yeah, I uh, had the pleasure of, of being at Aaron and Deanna's wedding last week, and uh, it was a real joy. And I know, you know, Texans have a real pride about themselves and their state. And, uh, you know, they say that you can get the, the guy out of Texas, but you can't get the Texas out of the guy. Well, I was there for three days, and I'm wearing boots now, and I just can't seem to shake it. And that was just a few days, so I get it. I get it, but you know we're glad to have Deanna uh, join our family, and it, it was a pleasure to be uh, a witness to to their wedding. And um, she's a neat neat lady, loves the Lord, and uh, look forward to getting to know her better in uh, in, the, in the years ahead. So here we are, Luke chapter six. Feels like it's been a long time, because um, it has. It's been I think we started this last September. And um, I personally think it's always good. I'm always benefiting from um, kind of stepping back a little bit and saying, okay, why are we, why are we doing this? What are we here for? And um, so I think it's always good for us to kind of stay connected to the broader context and the purpose for this gospel that we're going through. Um, it's how my brain and how my heart works. Sometimes I can get lost in the weeds week to week. And it's good to kind of step back. So that's what my intro is going to be a little bit of stepping back and uh, looking at the broader context because life can get very complicated. Um, and I think Luke is trying to tell us that amidst all the craziness of life, this Christian life is pretty simple, actually. It's just about Christ. It's about knowing him and being changed by him. And at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Luke summarizes the content of his gospel when he says, in the first book, speaking about the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the stated content of this book is quite simple. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing more. And as we began our study in the book of Luke back in September, we found that he makes very clear what the purpose of this book is. He makes it clear in verse 4, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught, presumably about Jesus. So connecting the two statements, Luke intends to put the person and work of Jesus Christ on display for us to see so that we who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel might have certainty, stability of idea, stability of thought, something that you can take to the bank. But I still ask the question, what is this desired certainty all unto? What's the point of it? What's the point of putting Jesus on display? What's the point of this certainty that we have in him? Practically speaking, whatever certainty that might come from Luke's gospel, his detailed, reliable account is meaningless unless it's unto something else. Otherwise, the truths that are presented are simply statements of facts that really aren't intended to have any impact on our lives. No real purpose, nothing beyond. It's just take it or leave it. Take the fact that A squared plus B squared equals C squared, we all know it. We probably believe it to some extent, right? But so what? What am I supposed to do with that? 
Now, some people just take that fact, they memorize it, right, Matheson? Just get me through this test so I can memorize A squared plus B squared equals C squared. But other than that, it's just kind of boring information that I don't know what to do with. While others recognize the incredible value of this mathematical truth and use the certainty of this fact that A squared plus B squared equals C squared, they can count on it, to build bridges and send spaceships to the moon. That's what Cassie wants from you, Matheson. Don't just memorize the right answers to pass the test. Learn it. Be amazed at the fact that A squared plus B squared equals C squared and go do something with it. Apply what you've been taught. And by the way, this is an overwhelming majority of the cases in the pattern we see in Scripture. Take Hebrews, for example. He spends 12 or more chapters talking about the ex excellencies of the person of Christ as our sacrifice, final sacrifice, as our high priest, and then gets to chapter 13 and says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Learn all there is to know. Look at what all there is to see about this Savior and go to him. Romans does the same thing. Paul spends 11 chapters giving us rich doctrinal truths about our condition before a holy God, about a holy Savior who came and made a way for us to have fellowship with Him again. And then he goes to chapter 12 and says, I appeal to you, therefore, on the basis of everything I've said before, don't just memorize the facts. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed. That's the point of the first 11 chapters of Romans, that we be transformed. Doesn't that just make sense? Luke is no different from Cassie, Paul, or anyone else, really. So it's my belief and my reminder to you today that Luke has our life of faith. He has our life, our sanctification in view when he strings these stories about Jesus together. These stories are meant for us to be encouraged by, to be changed by. Back when we started Luke, Matt got us kicked off and said that the chief aim, I know this because I have it in my notes, the chief aim of us going through this book would be that we would know God in a fuller, more clear way. And that our hearts might love and treasure him and be changed. God is in the business of changing people. That's the goal. God glorifying transformation, like that butterfly that goes from one form to the other. Walking in newness of life, a life of faithful, sacrificial obedience. Or as Paul says in Colossians, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's pretty simple. So this new transformed life, which by the way, every regenerated heart is supposed to crave, it will crave this new transformed life, simply will not happen. It will not happen apart from our fixing our eyes on the glories of Christ in his word. 
Paul reminds us, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is how God does it. And in my experience, I am constantly moving between faithful and faithless. It's this yo-yo life reality. There's no coasting into faithfulness. At least it doesn't seem to be for me. Read your Bible. Look at the Old Testament. Look around you. Old Testament, New Testament. Our flesh, our fears, our lives in this world are constantly warring against us, constantly pulling us towards faithlessness, giving us reasons to fear and to forget and to take our focus off of Christ. Seeking to devour our faith and as Satan wanted to have with Peter, sift him like wheat. He wants to sift you like wheat. And you will waste much of your life in that faithless category if you do not recognize your frailty and are not constantly fixing your eyes on Christ through his word. Faithfulness never happens in our own strength and resolve. We need him. Day by day, we need him. Like a deer pants for flowing streams of water, we need him. We need God to do something in our hearts that we feel that moment by moment and day by day. Now, I'm not standing up here putting this burden around your neck to go read the Bible more. I'm not going to put that burden on you, but I am saying that you will get eaten alive if your gaze is not constantly fixed on Jesus Christ and his word. And if that reality puts you on your face before God in his word, then great. That makes sense. To do anything else means we just don't get it. We don't understand our frailty. We don't understand our need. Peter was walking on water. I'm literally walking on water until he, what? Took his gaze off of Christ. He looked at the things around him. He looked at all the, the storm underneath his feet. And he was distracted by the things that legitimately threatened to swallow him up, and he sank. Those Israelites were safe from the serpents as long as they held their gaze on the bronze serpent that Moses held up faithfully. John 3, 4, Jesus reminds us, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him, it's an ongoing believing in him, may have eternal life. So let's go to him in his word this morning. And if you're sitting here as a Christian, as a professing believer, don't just sit there numb like I was when I was a teenager listening to Jerry. Don't sit there numb and unmoved by what is revealed about your Savior from this pulpit. In fact, you need to be frightened. If you sit there and these, these truths just land on you like nothing, should be frightened, that should bother you. There's nothing going on inside. No expectancy of approaching his word and seeing more of Christ. No excitement. No desire for holiness. It's all just boring, honestly. Be on your face before God and pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to see Jesus for who he really is. And be changed by it. So that's my prayer for us this morning. So that's my intro. Sorry. Hopefully it didn't take up too much time, but that's 
really what life's about, right? It's pretty simple. Seeing Christ for who he is and being changed by it. And telling others about it. So, by now, uh, you hopefully have opened up to Luke chapter 7. Brian has uh, faithfully gotten us through, um, actually a lot. Gosh, we've gotten Matt, Tom, Levi, Brian. We've had several kind of a smorgasbord of, of teachers coming up through the first six chapters, and it's, it's been a real blessing to me. Um, so as we, as we look at, uh, we're here at chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to take the first 10 verses uh, to start. So let's just read through it and read along as, uh, as I read through. So after he had finished all his sayings, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount that Brian just finished up, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him, sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he has the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in, Jer in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, this story comes immediately downstream of a sermon, sermon where Jesus describes the heart of a true believer. Kingdom living. And some examples he gives, very practical examples of ways and behaviors that flow from this heart. All of it resting securely on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. So it's no surprise that Jesus would immediately illustrate. That's, that's the way God works, right? You hear a sermon. How long does it take before there's a real life illustration or an implication that we face to put it to use? So it's no surprise that immediately after this, we're going to be introduced to a kind of faith like this. And at the same time, Luke is also going to highlight something about Jesus that we need to see, namely his authority. And that's the main point of my text this morning. My main point of this text is that Jesus has ultimate authority over life and death, and he answers to nobody. Chew on that last part just a little bit longer. He answers to no one. Authority is defined by Google anyways. I assume it's a good definition. Authority is defined as the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience. I think that captures the biblical definition pretty well. So Jesus has the power to give orders over life, death, illness, viruses, you name it. He has the right to rule 
And in this first story of the centurion's servants, Jesus is clearly demonstrating his authority over sickness. And later, when we get to the widow's son, we're going to see his authority over death itself and life. But not all heart postures, heart attitudes to this authority are the same. So we're going to look at some different heart attitudes, some heart postures, and some views of this authority, and we're going to uncover a little bit about what motivates our Lord to act, to do things. And then we're going to close with some implications for us. So heart posture, heart attitude number one. I'm going to start with the Jewish elders. The Jewish elders' manipulation of his authority. I'm going to skip to verse 4 and 5. It says, And when they came, the Jewish elders, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, meaning the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He's a great guy. He loves our nation. He does good things for us. Matter of fact, he built us a synagogue, a place of worship. He loves our nation. And according to these Jewish leaders, he was worthy for those reasons alone. But what was really at the heart of these Jewish elders? We know from a host of other texts that these guys were not in Jesus' camp. Their hearts were not in support of Jesus and they had never shown any acceptance of his miracles or claims to be the Messiah. They were no friend of Christ. For them, the end game was not the exaltation of Christ in doing this miracle. They did not stand in humble submission to his authority, but rather they wanted to further secure this high-ranking centurion's love and support for the nation of Israel. No good Jew would ever have supported the notion that a Gentile dog could ever have a relationship with God. But they certainly enjoyed the perks of having this Roman on their side. So they sought to manipulate the authority of Christ for their own personal gain. In fact, most of these Jewish leaders felt like Jesus did these miracles in the power of the devil. But if it's a friend of Israel needs a miracle, by golly, we'll make it happen for him. Let's find him, Jesus. He's able to do some pretty cool stuff. I don't care where the power comes from. Let's just get this centurion what he needs. All the while still ultimately in rebellious hatred of Jesus and his authority that he was proving day in and day out. They were seeing it, but they hated it. And they were only in love with their synagogue and the protection that this Roman centurion provided. So Jesus may have listened to them and gone with them. But make no mistake, their shrewd angle was not very motivating to the Lord. But he went. Heart posture number two. The centurion's humble submission. Verse 2 and 3, we see that the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And this servant was very valued by him. He was very close, very dear to him. And when the centurion had heard about all the things that Jesus was doing, he sent elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. So this high-ranking Roman army commander, commander of a hundred soldiers, 
was in desperate need and turned to a Jewish car carpenter of all people, turned to a Jewish carpenter for help. Now, normally there'd be no way. It would be very unusual, at least, for a Roman to lower himself to ask for help from a Jew, much less some non-Pharisee-endorsed, self-studied rabbi who traveled around like a nomad with a bunch of misfits, uneducated fishermen. He certainly wasn't the one that I would probably turn to. But it's here that we find evidence that God clearly had been working in this centurion's life, had been working in his heart. This guy did love the people of God. As far off track as they had gotten, he loved them for some reason. And he had generously provided them a place of worship. For this Gentile dog, he certainly was checking a lot of boxes that Brian talked about last several Sundays, humility, loving enemies, generous, bearing fruit. So when this guy hears all that Jesus has been saying and doing, he naturally turns to him. He turned to him believing that he had the power and the authority to heal his servant. Skipping down to verses 6 and 7, he says, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Here's his heart. I am not worthy for you to even come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't even presume to come to you. That's why he sent the elders. He wasn't even worthy to come into his presence, much less to have Jesus come into his roof. So the Jewish perspective is, these Jewish elders say, man, he's worthy. He's got it all together. He's got the goods. He's worthy for you to act. And yet the centurion, by his own admission, is not worthy. He's humble. He has a heart of brokenness before God and unworthiness. And therein lies an infinite difference. From the Sermon on the Mount and countless other places in Scripture, we learn that God desires hearts that are humble before Him, broken and contrite hearts that recognize they have nothing to offer an infinite and holy God. And they lack, they lack any worthiness to receive anything good from him. So they're coming to God completely like this centurion in a place of bankruptcy. They have nothing to offer. That's what God is looking for. 100% dependence on his grace and his mercy. And this is what we see in the heart of the centurion. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But with this humility of heart, he also is a man who understands authority. Verse 8 I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, they obey. He speaks, and these soldiers listen without question. So he knew from his own limited experience that if he, a mere human, could order these types of things and have these people listen to him without question, that he had this kind of authority, how much more would the Son of God have? Abraham Kuyper has famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. I own it. And he rules over it. The centurion believed this about Jesus. And this view of Jesus' absolute 
authority was the foundation for his faithful response in verse 7 where he says, say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't even have to come and see him. Don't touch him. You don't have to be here with him. Just say the word and from however many miles away, that illness, that sickness, whatever was going on, that paralysis would stop and he would be made whole. This demonstration of faith that Jesus said was unparalleled in Israel. And it was compelling to our Lord. It was the man's faith that motivated Jesus to act. Verse 9 and 10 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when, they had been sent, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. He had been made whole, perfect, perfectly healthy. Matthew's account says it even more plainly in verses, uh, chapter 8, 13 says, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you, speaking to the centurion and his servants, as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Just him saying the word healed his servant. Jesus has authority over all things and he answers to no one. In this case, he was motivated to act by the man's faith. So now let's see what's going on with the widow's son. Verse 11, we'll read 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. They had seen this before, or heard about it, read about this before, the days of Elijah and Elisha. And God had visited his people, they said. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So with the centurion, Jesus demonstrated his authority over life and death by healing a servant who was in certain death. But here, Jesus demonstrates his authority over life and death by raising the widow's son from the dead. Now, honestly, the reading of this can just not do it justice. He spoke to a dead man in a coffin, commanding that he be raised up, that he awake. And the dead man obeyed him. He rose up and started to talk back to Jesus. This is one of those incredible stories that we so often just kind of read over onto the next paragraph. It just doesn't seem to really land on us, maybe because we've never seen it before. It seems so outside of us. We often read over it, and we're not affected by it. But in verse 16, we, say, we hear and see that fear seized all the people who were there. I don't know if fear seizes you when you read these stories. And they glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and the report spread. They took that information that they saw with their eyes, and it affected them. 
big time. You either see and feel the implications of this or you don't. Maybe it would be helpful if Brandon would come up here and strum the guitar and kind of stir up some emotion. But how often do we just sit here and read this and nothing stirs in us? I'm no different. But here is what Luke is wanting you to see and to know. Deepen your soul with certainty so that Jesus, this Jesus that we serve, has ultimate authority over life and death, and he answers to no one. No situation is outside his rule, his control, and he does it as he pleases. You need to know that. And it needs to provide hope to you. You need to hope in a God who, no matter how dire or how bad the situation seems, he's in control. And he can, he is able to, with one word, change the situation, whatever it is. Doesn't mean he absolutely will. His purposes are much higher than ours. We, have, we lack the ability to know what all he's up to. So it doesn't mean that he will, but he can. And that should bring us hope. Even if for 80 years we struggle through something that we think is unfair, we think isn't right, we have the promise and the assurance that Christ is on his throne, reigning, ruling. We have that promise. And we can take that to the bank. And Luke is giving us countless reasons to put our, trace, our trust and our hope in Christ. But with all this power, and with all this authority and submission talk, we also need to see another incredible aspect of our Savior. Verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, this widow, was in a terrible situation, had just lost her only son, had already lost her husband. She clearly had a lot of people surrounding her and loved her, but she was alone. She had no one to support her. And it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. I can't help but think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus has the authority to turn your weeping into laughter. But is that a spiritual weeping or a physical? Yes. Jesus is showing you that he has the authority and the compassion required to turn your weeping into laughter. He has the authority and the compassion required to raise the dead to life. Physically, yes. Spiritually, yes, all of it. Paul reminds us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 all of them. So trust in him. Sometimes the Lord is motivated to act by faith of the individual. We see that often in scripture. And other times he is simply motivated out of his compassion, his mercy, his grace. And yes, there are times where he chooses not to act at all. And that doesn't make you faithless, nor does it make him mean. No matter what, we must remember that he rules and does so as he pleases and according to his purposes. He answers to nobody. 
a quote from Daniel. At the end of the days, I lifted my eyes to heaven. Some of you know who said this. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's an amazing perspective by a pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar. You should read the story if you're not familiar with it. God humbled him. He was a very arrogant, prideful king who was not very kind to the people of Israel. He hated God and God humbled him by making him graze like a cow in the fields for years. But God humbled him. And it's my prayer that we would share in this humble perspective of Christ's authority over our lives. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, that we would joyfully surrender and submit to this God that Nebuchadnezzar describes. I pray that we would trust him and that we would honor him as the most high. And for those of us who, with lingering, stubborn, prideful, rebellious hearts, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to conclude from his own experience and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That is a scary thought, but a good truth. And the reality for us is that you think your heart, you're prideful, or maybe the heart of the guy in your home, your husband, your son, you think that heart is outside his rule and authority? You think your stubborn heart is outside his rule and authority? Think again. If he hasn't acted yet, it's because he hasn't decided to act. He has his purposes. So here's some applications for us. I'm going to ponder these together. Spend some time thinking about it, talking about it as a family, as over dinner. Because I believe this authority piece, this authority question, how we approach the authority of Christ is probably one of the most important things about Christ we need to understand and get and feel and be impacted by. It affects everything we do, jobs we pursue, time we spend doing this or that. Are we submitting to him or are we just living by our own agenda, our own rules, our own authority. Question number one for us, what is your heart posture to Christ's authority in your life? Is it one of humble submission and trust? Is it like Isaiah who just fell before him and said, here I am, Lord, send me, whatever it is? Or is it one of rebellion, even just a little bit, is it rebellion and trying to manipulate and use his authority or his power over things for your own benefit? You know, one of the best ways to measure this, to know what your heart is really saying about the authority of Christ, is to look at how you deal with the authorities that God has put in your life. 
bosses, Brandon, Hunter, where he's not here. So many have a boss. There he is. Got to submit, right? As unfair as that seems. He's an authority that God's put over y'all's lives. We all have them. Most of us do. About teachers. Teachers we think are just so annoying and so lame. Parents. Goodness. We always know more than our parents, don't we? The government. Ruling authorities. The police. How are you submitting? How do you view these authorities in your life? Because how you approach these authorities in your life is directly related to how you view the, the authority of Christ. God has put these authorities in your life and he's put them there for a reason. And we've been called to submit to them as unto the Lord, whether good or bad. Scriptures don't clarify, submit to the good ones and rebel against the bad ones. In fact, 1 Peter says the opposite. Read it. Be encouraged by it. You're not the only one who's had to submit, been asked to submit to an unruly authority or an unrighteous authority even. So we are called to submit to them as unto the Lord. And by doing so, we are demonstrating our faith in God and his ultimate authority over everyone, everything, every other ruling authority in our life. Rebellion against the one is rebellion against the ultimate. There's no difference. So I want you to see Jesus in the Gospels for who he is, who Luke is presenting him to be, and embrace him as the ultimate authority over your life and death and all that exists, and be changed by it. And if you're a child that has a parent, start today, repent of your rebellious attitude towards your parents and towards your teachers and submit to them as unto Christ. Adults, demonstrate your faith to your children and to those around you. Adults, demonstrate your faith in the ultimate authority by submitting to those who have authority over you, your bosses, the government. Be careful how you talk about our president. They happen to even be your enemies. Pray for them. Love them. And do it with joy. Don't do it with this half-hearted nonsense. Be done with that. Either be for God or against. Don't do this lukewarm stuff. God has them over you for a reason, so embrace it. Question number two. When it comes to the commands of Christ, as we see it in Scripture, and even as we try to apply in the, in the, in the thousands of implications that the Holy Spirit shows us and directs us from the day to day, as we learn about Him through His Word, He he pushes our hearts towards doing things, commands that we are to obey. So when it comes to these commands of Christ, where are you pushing back? Where are you resisting? Is he calling you to do something and you've just been hesitant to move forward, resistant to say yes, why? Get with a friend, get with your spouse, get with your children, whatever it takes 
and talk through this. Get with the Lord and talk through why am I resistant to what the Lord is telling me to do? What is it that stands in your way? Is it comfort? Is it financial security? Is it this illusion of not having enough time? What is it that's really getting in your way? Just be honest with yourself. Perhaps there's a mission life group that you feel like you should really be a part of and you want, your heart wants to be involved. You feel the Spirit pushing you in that direction. But there's just not enough time in the day, you say. You've got too many other things going on. Just not yet, Lord. Or maybe you're dealing with a lifelong ailment. And you're called to just sit and to wait and to bear and to trust for years. Maybe that's your calling and you just are resistant to it. Maybe you're waiting for that perfect job, that thing you've poured your life into. And God is asking you to just wait. Maybe you're waiting for that adoption. And you're just called to wait and wait and wait and wait. And you're resistant. You hate the fact that he's asking you to wait. Or maybe he's asking you to love that unruly child who just will not listen. Who hates the Lord. And he's telling you to just love that child over and over and over again. Countless examples, right? Maybe there's just a neighbor or a coworker that God has been just hounding you about. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. And all you can seem to do is to talk about football or the weather, meaningless things. Just can't seem to get beyond the inter-office drama at work. What the subjects always seem to stop at. I just And yet you feel in your heart God is telling you to talk about something that's real. And you're just, no, not yet, not yet. Maybe you're being called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to some of the hardest places on the planet where they hate the gospel and they would persecute you to take it there. And you're scared it would cost you too much. And you're like, I could never. Maybe that's you this morning, that you feel God calling you to take this message of Christ's authority and his rule and his reign and his good news to the furthest places and the hardest places around the world. And you just say, mm, man, I love this life. I love the way... This chair feels and this bed would cost me too much to do that. Lord, surely you can send someone else. And in all these examples, you just resist, resist, resist. And you keep saying no or not yet. Not yet is no different than no. And I know this because if I tell my son to take out the trash, any one of those sons over there, which I often do. Every week I ask them to take out the trash. And they tell me, basically, they don't use words, but they say, not yet. That's still disobedience, right? 
we may lower the standard for our own children, our own experiences, but God as the ultimate authority still requires, demands, and deserves our obedience, our perfect obedience. He doesn't deserve our saying no, much less not yet. Who's in charge here? Anything else besides yes, send me. Anything else is simply contrary to the nature of the Spirit that lives within you. And I'm not saying you need to try harder to obey. Be real with yourself. But I am telling you that to say no to God or not yet is inconsistent with who you are in Christ. You should not be at peace with telling God no. He is the ultimate authority. And if a, a Gentile centurion can tell his soldiers to go and do this and do that, and they go and they obey, how much more the God of the universe, God of all creation, tell you to do something, tell me to do something, and we say no. It's inconceivable. It should not feel good for us to spend week after week, month after month, year after year, season after season telling him no or not yet. Because not yet, we all know, the trash never gets taken out. It's not really not yet, it's just no. We need to face the facts. I was hoping Adam was here. I was going to make a reference to The Rock. I know he's a big wrestler guy. I'm going to say it anyways. Maybe he's listening. The Rock says, is famous for saying, know your role and shut your mouth. You can see that working out well, probably in professional wrestling. Now, I wouldn't normally endorse something that he would say, but he does have that right. We need to know our role. And there's times where we just need to shut our mouth before God. Stop giving him all these excuses just know our role and shut our mouth and obey. And I know that that's easier said than done. That's where the fight of faith is. This is impossible to say yes apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from a new heart, apart from being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot say yes to God. But those of us who do have new hearts, who have been changed, who have been rescued and reconciled to this holy God, can and will say yes. It's embedded in the new covenant. I will take out their heart of stone, I will put in a heart of flesh, and they will obey me. That's the promise that we have. And you don't have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth to experience the joy of being in perfect obedience with the Lord. We can do it now. We have the power to do it now. So we need to know our role. And just say yes. Lord, here I am. Send me. And this gets to the heart of it all. That Who are we to say no to this Jesus? Think about the examples that we see in Scripture highlighted for us in the stories of Moses who had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. Otherwise, he'd be consumed. He could not look at his face. This is the God we're talking about here. 
Isaiah saw him, had a vision of him in his temple, and was totally undone. Paul saw him and was struck blind. Read these examples in Scripture over and over again and recognize that we don't serve a different God here today. It's the same God today as was yesterday and forever will be. Paul Washer says, here stands God. Just, I love this. Uh, I heard him say this. And I looked it up. It says, here stands God. This shows the lunacy of what we're talking about. He looks, God in creation, looks at the stars and he says, all you stars, move yourself to this place and start in this order and move in a circle and move exactly as I tell you. Until I give you another word, planet, pick yourself up and whirl. Make this formation at my command until I give you another word. He looks at mountains and says, be lifted up, and they obey him. He tells valleys to be cast down, and they obey him. He looks at the sea and says, you will come this far and no further, and the sea obeys. Then he looks at you and me and says, come or go. And we say, no are you kidding me? Does that bother anyone? Does that bother you that that happens? The human heart, even as believers, as non-believers, wretched, evil. We know this about ourselves. But even as believers, the human heart can be so incredibly stubborn and rebellious. It should bother us that we tell the creator of the universe, no, thank you. I have my own plans today. It should bother us in our souls. When you receive a new heart from God and embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you cannot do so while still maintaining this fake illusion of power and control over your own life. You cannot remain in rebellion to that new perfect authority. It's inconceivable and it's incompatible. And Jesus tells us you will not serve two masters. You cannot. You will love the one and hate the other. That's just a fact. We don't live in this. You're not loving both. So you're either going to listen to one or you're, and you're going to ignore the other. That's the way it works. It's how the human heart was designed. But out of this new heart that God gives us by His grace, this heart flows humble submission. And when you don't bear fruit in keeping with this new heart, when you act in ways that are solely contrary to this new heart, it should bother us. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is there to help us, to reveal it to us, so that we will see it. And He uses all kinds of circumstances to reveal this about us, that we can see it, hate it, and we want that rebellious tendency to be gone, purged from our lives. So look to Christ this morning in His Word. I want you to see His authority over life and death, and in all the miracles of the gospel, see him as supreme. Submit to him and to his will for your life. And as evidence with the widow's son, remember that we have a Savior who is full of compassion. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Run to him. Trust in him this morning. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Amen.